Well, good morning. It's, uh, well, it's good to be here with you this morning. As Joe said, my name is Jeremy McMillan. My wife, Sarah, is floating around somewhere, maybe with the kids right now, getting them in, in Sunday school. We're missionaries with Reach Beyond, which is formerly HCJB Global, and we serve in Quito, Ecuador, where we've been for uh, two and a half years. We left this area for training and then language school three and a half years ago. Uh, when this church didn't exist on this campus and where it was known by Whittier Hills Baptist Church. And so it's, it's fun to be back, but I'll tell you, there's a danger in, uh, in ministering to people who know you. I, first of all, you can't get away with any fibs, but I, I don't do that anyway, uh, or try not to anyway. But um, I had two people this morning tell me, we're going to heckle you while you're up there. So, well, only friends would do that. So... Um, so it is very good to be here. It's actually really uh, surreal to be here. We're only here for, for a short time in the States as we do what's called HMA, furlough, whatever you want to call it. And we're just kind of going around visiting, talking about what God's doing in Ecuador. And that's not the focus of our time together this morning, but, um, but that's what we're doing here before we return to Quito on August 31st. And so uh, it's just fun to get to see you. It feels very familiar, but it feels very foreign at the same time. Familiar because we recognize faces, uh, foreign because we have all changed and grown over the last number of years, familiar because, you know, some of the major landmarks are the same, but foreign in that, well, there's a new Sprouts, there's a new Starbucks, there's a new this, there's a new that, and I don't know where they all came from because I wasn't gone that long except that I was. Uh, It's it's just very surreal. Uh, But before I I dive into today's text with you, we do want to express our heartfelt gratitude to you as a church, uh, to this campus, to all the campuses of Redemption Hill. Uh, Living overseas with other missionaries, I have come to greatly appreciate the love and support and the care that we have received from you. Uh, And I want to make sure you know that. We say thank you from the bottom of our hearts. We do not feel disconnected. We do not feel alone. And that is huge in the life of a missionary. If you've ever lived overseas, I think you would attest to the same. And so I want to encourage you that your labor in the Lord is not in vain, that what you are doing is encouraging our hearts as we seek to follow the Lord. And our prayer is that what we are doing is an encouragement to your hearts as you seek to follow the Lord. So thank you. Thank you. This morning, uh, I have the privilege of preaching, continuing the series that you guys have been in in Acts. One of the things that, uh, that I do in Ecuador is preach, not, uh, not all the time. I get to do that about once a month because I work in an international church, which is an English-speaking church, even though we live in a Spanish-speaking country. It's a very interesting mix. Uh, if you want to know more about that, grab me afterwards. That's not the focus of our time together this morning. Uh, but I do get to preach some, and so Dennis very kindly, and we'll see if, uh, if it was a good choice or not, invited me to, to preach here. And I'm glad to preach. I'm glad to support Dennis's work. He and I have been friends for a number of years, and uh, we are both new in this pastoring thing together, and so it's good to walk together. Thank you, Dennis. I appreciate it. As always, it's a privilege to open God's Word. It is God's Word. It is not merely man's Word. I was reminded as I wrestled through this passage this past week, I was reminded of some verses that Paul wrote in 2 Timothy where he said, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, 
and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. I was reminded of those verses because the passage we're in today is interesting. (laughs) So I asked Luke multiple times this past uh, stretch here as I worked on this, Luke, why did you include all of this stuff? Why is this here? And I kept coming back to, okay, there's something here that God has for us to see. And so uh, it's in in that confidence that we'll open God's word together, remembering that it is God's word, it is all useful, and it is powerful in the hands of the Holy Spirit. And that's been my prayer this morning, that it would be powerful in his hands. Now, I'm going to be completely uh, honest with you. I don't know if if you're supposed to be honest when you're up here, but um, uh, I, I don't exactly know where we're going with this this morning. Which, if you know me, you know I'm terrified at that. I'm an electrical engineer by my original training. And you know, engineers, we like to have everything lined up. We like to know the next 10 steps, not just the next step. And as I stand up here, I've got part of a sermon here from hours and hours of chewing and wrestling with this. I've got kind of a similar sermon here that I sketched out this morning. And I have a feeling we're going to talk about some things that God has laid on my heart that are not exactly those That is part of the challenge of learning to live a life fully surrendered to our Savior. And I believe that we find that in all areas of life, not just somebody who stands up to preach, not just when we're doing formal ministry, but learning to surrender our lives to a living Lord and Savior is what it's all about when it comes to following Jesus. And so... You're going to see a little bit of that as the Holy Spirit does his work this morning because I trust the Holy Spirit will do his work. I actually think that what I just said is a significant part of where, what Luke was getting at in his passage here, why he included all of this that we're going to look at today. That what we see before us is a man who lives his life following a living Lord and Savior. And it doesn't always look like what we expect we don't always know what's coming next, but we follow Jesus in it. I think that's what we're going to see here. Let me give a little bit of background in Acts. If you haven't been here, like I haven't been here, uh, just to make sure we know where we're at in the story because that helps us understand where we're at right now. So a little bit of background of Acts. Acts chronicles the outward spread of the good news of Jesus Christ. The good news that he gave his life so that we could have life. The good news that he has taken care of our sin and restored our relationship with, Christ, with God the Father by his work and not ours. That's what Acts is about. Jesus summarized the, the movement of Acts in chapter 1 verse 8 when he said to his disciples, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. That's what Acts is about, says Jesus. This is about the movement out from Jerusalem where it started to Samaria and Judea and then the other utter ends of the earth. And that's what Acts is following. And that's what Acts is moving us to. The second half of the book of Acts follows Paul, a former Jesus hater who met Jesus face-to-face, personally, in living color, if you're old enough to remember that. Uh, He met Jesus, and it changed Paul's life. And Jesus went from being a, excuse me, Paul, Jesus never hated the church. Paul went from being being a church persecutor and a Jesus hater to being a Jesus follower and a missionary 
on Christ's mission in this world. And so as we've traveled through Acts lately, we've been following Paul in his journeys as he follows Christ. Now, of course, not everyone liked the fact that Paul was making an impact on the world. Not everyone liked the fact that people were coming to Christ, specifically those that didn't believe Jesus raised from the dead, specifically those that didn't believe Jesus was the Son of God in whom we have salvation. They hated Paul and his work. And so they started to stir up trouble, and we're actually in the middle of a stretch where Paul has been arrested because of accusations made by those opposed to to Christ, and so Paul is on trial. He's been on trial multiple times already. This morning, he's on trial again. We'll actually see that he's on trial, uh, the same trial this morning is repeated twice. Again, Luke, why do you do all this? But we see Paul in the midst of these trials defending his faith in Jesus Christ. More than that, he is testifying to the facts that he has seen and experienced and knows to be true about Jesus Christ. And that's where we find Paul this morning. Would you pray with me as as we begin? Lord God, my prayer has been and continues to be that you would speak this morning. We are here to worship you because you are worthy. Lord, we are here to grow in our faith because you are Lord and because we love you and we love you because you first loved us. So here we are, Lord. Father, as I've wrestled with this passage, um, I don't know what you are doing exactly but I know you're at work. And so, Father, my prayer is that you would do that work. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to ask you a question. Start our sermon proper. Is Jesus dead or is he alive? It's not really a trick question. Let me ask it again. Is Jesus dead or is he alive? He's alive. I figured most of you would say that. I didn't know it would take twice to get you to say it. Jesus is alive. I think there's plenty of historical evidence on all sorts of levels that gives us good confidence to say that Jesus is alive. But the point of my sermon this morning is not to give us historical evidence that Jesus is alive. That's not what this passage is about, so that's not what I'm going to talk about. If you want to talk about that, there are some people in your congregation that would be able to point you to some amazing foundational truths about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I say that not because I don't want you to talk to me. I'm happy to talk. Um, But I say that because I'm not around much after this. Far away. You can do it on email. But but so, so my point this morning is not to prove that Jesus Christ is historically alive. I think most of us actually agree with that already. Okay? So I'm not going to try and convince you of that. I'm going to assume that for our time together this morning. But what I'm asking is, is Jesus alive to you personally and practically in your life? Is Jesus Christ dead or is he alive? Now let me explain why I'm asking that question. If Jesus is, is historically alive, you can't, you, if that's a, a historical fact, you can't deny that 
simply by saying, no, it's not true. The truth is the truth. A fact is a fact. It happened. Great. But do we live like Jesus is alive? To help us kind of wrestle with this a little bit, I want to think about how you define whether or not something is alive. Uh, it's probably some biologists in the room who could do this a lot better than me. But if you, if you remember back to biology class a long time ago, dust off some of those things, you define something being alive by things like it, it respires, it breathes, or it has some way of taking in oxygen and letting out, or whatever it is it breathes. Um, plants don't breathe oxygen and they're still alive, right? Uh, but whatever, it, it respires. It, it has some sort of movement, some sort of... Uh, growth that goes on with it. It responds to what's around it. It interacts with its environment and with those things around us, or around it. And we see that in animals, we see that in people, we see that on some level in plants, uh, different, all, all these different things that are alive. There's an interaction between the living thing and its environment. Whereas dead things are dead. There's no difference. It doesn't matter what you do to it, right? If you take a dead person and poke him in the eye, he's not going to complain. He's dead. He doesn't re- interact with anything. If you, uh, you, you get my point. There's a, the, 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 folk, the difference I want to focus in this morning on be, is, be, excuse me, the difference I want to focus in this morning between being dead and being alive is that it makes a difference in your life. Something that's dead doesn't matter in a sense. It doesn't interact with you. It's not there with you. Now, don't take it too far. Every, every uh, picture has its limitations. But someone or something who is alive has direct interaction with its environment. And if we're talking about people, a, a living person has a dr- direct interaction with people and things around it in a way that someone who's dead does not. So back to my question then. I hope that makes sense. I told you I wasn't sure where this was all going this morning. Uh, Back to my question again. Is Jesus Christ the living, is he alive? Is he alive? Is he the living Lord of your life or does it look more like he's dead if you were to look at your life? Because if you say he's alive but he makes no difference, he doesn't interact with you, he doesn't impact the way that you live, then for all intents and purposes, Jesus is dead to you and not alive. Why do I lay that out here this morning? Why why do I ask that question? I ask that question because that is the question that has been challenging me as I have wrestled with this passage that we're in this morning. Is Jesus Christ my living Lord? And is that evident by the way he impacts my life? Or is he simply a dead guy who I like to say nice things about? Is he simply a dead guy who really, if it comes down to it, doesn't make a difference? As we turn to our passage today, uh, like I said, this is the account of another trial that Paul is on. He's forced to defend himself against his enemies who, who actually want him dead. Uh, and interestingly, in this chapter, we're in Acts chapter 25, interestingly in this chapter, uh, we, we actually hear about this same trial twice. First, the narrative account that Luke gives, and then Festus, who's the governor at the time, 
repeats the, the trial again to King Agrippa. Same trial, two times. We're already in the middle of a bunch of trials, but this is where Luke chooses to spend his time. Uh, so I want to... Something that, that, that I wrestled with as I looked at this passage was that there, there is, it's mostly a summary is what it feels like to me. There's not a lot of detail given. There's not a lot of uh, specifics that it seems that Paul is pointing to. There are, there are some, and we'll see some of them. But I wrestled with, well, why this, Paul? Why, why this? And then, and then I realized that there is actually one very important detail that is given in this account. A detail that uh, stood out to the governor in a, way that, um, in a way that made it stand out to me and I think should make it stand out to all of us. You see, so Paul is on trial. He gives his defense after his accusers attack him and Festus, the governor, goes and tells all about this to, to King Agrippa. And we'll walk through this more in just a minute, but I want, to, want you to see where we're going with this. Festus repeats the trial to Agrippa. He doesn't give almost any details at all, either because he didn't understand them or he didn't care about them. But he does repeat one detail, and I want, I want us to see this. Verse 18 and verse 19 of Acts chapter 25 read this. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in Paul's case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead but whom Paul asserted to be alive. In the midst of what seemed to be a lot of broad overview, Festus picked up on a detail. Of everything that he heard from Paul, the one thing that stood out to him was that Paul believes Jesus is alive. Paul believes this dead man Jesus is alive. Of anything that Festus could have said about Paul's defense... That's what he says. And as I read through this chapter again and again, that's what hit me. Paul belonged to a living Jesus to the point that it was obvious to everyone around him. Paul belonged to a Lord and Savior who not only said some things and then left, but who still walked with him and made a significant difference in his life. His Lord was alive, and it made a difference. He wasn't some dead guy that he could just ignore. Paul's heart was undivided in his devotion and his focus was unswervingly fixed on Christ, his Savior, and Christ, his Lord. And it showed in his life. That's why Festus said, oh, I, I, I don't understand what they're talking about. It doesn't make sense to me. I don't care. But I did hear Paul say, this dead man Jesus is alive. That was clear. That was clear in Paul's life, in Paul's defense, in Paul's testimony. Jesus' life defined Paul's life. Can the same be said of us? That's the question that I've been wrestling with myself. Is Jesus my living, as in he makes a difference in my life, Lord and Savior, or is he still in the grave? Is he still a dead man? That's the question that, that I think we need to wrestle with out of our time together this morning. I want to walk us through the passage. I realize I pulled that out of the middle, but I wanted to, to show why we're going there this morning, why we're moving in that direction this morning. 
as we walk through uh, this passage, we're going to see some places where it is evident that Paul serves a living Lord and Savior. And I hope, my prayer, is that for each of us, we will be challenged out of this this morning to consider our own lives. If Jesus' lordship of Paul was evident, I think by his example we can say that it should be evident of our lives too. If Jesus lives, that means that makes a difference. If it makes no difference, then we might as well treat him as dead. So, Let's, let's walk through this a little bit, and I'm going to stop at three points as we walk through this, this narrative this morning. Last week, before, last week, Paul's trial, you guys studied Paul's trial before Felix, who was the governor of that region, uh, in Acts chapter 24. And if you recall, Paul stood trial as the Jewish leadership tried to accuse him of crimes deserving the death penalty. They're not playing around here. They want Paul shut up for good. And even though they failed miserably in their accusations... Paul still remained in prison. He should have been set free. Justice called for his freedom. There was nothing to his charges. He easily said, here's the evidence. There's no reason why you, nothing you have to to condemn me. And yet, Felix uh, wanted a bribe out of Paul, so he leaves, there we go. So he leaves him in prison for two years until Felix is removed from office for being, um, unscrupulous in his dealings as governor. Imagine that. He's already treated Paul unjustly, uh, and he's not the only one that Felix abuses. And so Felix is removed, and a new guy comes in, Festus, and that's where Acts chapter 25 picks up. doesn't take the Jewish leadership long to try to get at Paul again now that a new governor is in town. Uh, Within days of the new governor taking his position, Paul's enemies are already there saying, hey, can you do us a favor we, this guy, he's been in prison the last two years. He needs to be done away with. And so um, Festus says, no, I'm not going to... Really what the Jews want is for Festus to bring him up to Jerusalem, and they're planning to ambush him on the way and to kill him. They don't want a fair trial. They just want him dead. And Festus, by God's sovereign providential hand, says, no, I'm going back to Caesarea. You can come down with me, and we will try him there. So what's going on in, in the first few verses of this passage here. And so, just a few days later, within two weeks of Festus taking his governorship, he is back in Caesarea. The Jewish leaders come to accuse Paul, and Paul is on trial again. After two years of waiting in prison, Paul is on trial. In verse 8, we read Paul's defense after he's been accused. He says, Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. Again, I said this is kind of a summary. We don't get any details from Paul's defense other than some broad categories there. But by his response, it seems that the accusations were probably pretty similar to the ones that you looked at last week in Acts 24. That Paul is trying to cause trouble among the Jews, he is defaming God's temple, and he is violating Roman Roman law. But none of it was true, and Luke says none of it could be proven. These are just... You know, throw something against the wall, hope hope something sticks. And Paul's trial should have ended right there. Not guilty. Not guilty. And yet it doesn't. It's not how it goes. Pick back up in verse 9. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. 
To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing in their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his council, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. This is one of the places I want to pause in this passage and focus in where we see the fact that Jesus is Paul's living Lord and Savior and not just a dead guy in history. Why did Paul appeal to Caesar? It's a question that I think Luke, I don't know if he puts it out there, but it's a question that I had when I read this. Why, why Caesar? Wouldn't it be dangerous to appeal to Caesar, the... the uh, probably the most powerful man in the world at the time. Wouldn't it be dangerous to go there? And if he says, oh, that's it, you're done, there's nowhere else to go. So why does Paul do that? On the surface, it seems like a part of Paul's appeal to Caesar has to do with uh, the fact that he doesn't believe he's going to get a fair trial. Three times in the immediate context here, Luke uses the word favor. And when, when you're talking about a favor politically, it's not usually about justice. You don't need to ask for favors to get justice. And so Luke is kind of giving us a hint here that Paul says, is, is, th- is wrestling with this, this idea of, I'm not going to get a fair trial here. So what do we do about that? And actually, later on uh, in Acts chapter 28, Paul says basically that. I had to appeal because the Jews wouldn't accept the, the decision against him, is, is what he said. And so Paul's, Paul is appealing for a desire for justice. But as much as justice is important, as much as justice is a godly thing, I don't believe that it was at the heart of the motivation in Paul's appeal. It was a part of it, but I don't think it was at the heart of his motivation for his appeal. You see, justice, if Paul is not treated justly, he, he would likely be killed because of a political favor. But Paul's already said that he doesn't care about his life simply for the sake of his life. I'm guessing you guys touched on this back in Acts chapter 20, verse 24, where Paul says this, he shares his heart with us a little bit, and he says this, but I do not account my life of any value nor precious to myself. In other words, Paul's not afraid for his life. He even said it in our passage today. He said, if I, you know, if I deserve to die, I deserve to die, and I'm fine with that. He's not afraid for his life. For to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. We know that's Paul's uh, movement in his life and in his, his desire and his heart is to be with Jesus. So Paul's not afraid of death. So when he appeals for justice, it's not out of fear that he's going to be mistreated. Instead, let me finish reading Acts 20, 24, where he says, but I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. In other words, Paul says, I don't care about my life except for one thing. I want to finish the mission that Jesus has given me. I want to live the life that he has called me to. I want to tell others about Jesus and I will use my life to do that. And if I need to use my death to do that, that's fine. But if I have some way of continuing to advance the gospel, I will choose that way. And I believe that's what motivated Paul's appeal to Caesar far more foundationally than fear for his own life. He wants to see Jesus proclaimed. That's what Christ called him to. 
And that's what Paul has been living out for years at this point in his life. That's what matters to Paul. When he appeals to Caesar, it's not out of fear for his life. It is out of a desire to see the gospel of Jesus Christ advanced in the world. You see what Paul's doing here? He is making strategic choices in his life guided by his mission from his living Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus makes a difference in Paul's life. Jesus had told Paul early on when when Paul first met him that he would be his, his witness to the ends of the earth, that he would be his witness to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And Paul's been living that out. That is his desire. And he makes choices to see that come about. He wants to follow his Lord's lead. Jesus makes a difference in his life. He's alive. And I think about that in our own lives. Do we make strategic choices that reflect the Lordship of Jesus Christ Or is he kind of thrown in the mix to the point where you can't really tell that Jesus is our Lord? Is there question by the priorities and the focus of our lives as to whether or not Jesus is the living Lord? Is there a question in that when people look at us? As I thought about that, what does that look like in our lives, right? What does it look like to to follow a living Savior in our lives? choices and our priorities? How, do we, how are we strategic in that? And there are lots of examples we could talk about. We talk about how we use money. We could talk about how we treat our friends. We could talk about how we raise our children. But one example kept coming to mind. and I, It kept coming to mind. I think it's from the Holy Spirit. I don't know who he's talking to in here, but I think he's talking to somebody. A friend of mine, actually, uh, well, multiple people that I know, uh, but my brother and sister-in-law in in particular I was thinking about this morning, uh, they're missionaries in Portugal. And just a few years ago, they moved to another area of the city where they live specifically to plant a church. And it has been a very hard move for them. But they went to plant a church. That was a strategic choice in their life that said, Jesus, you're Lord, and I'll go where you lead me. So from that, the question would be, do we consider the gospel? Do we consider the leading of Christ in our choices? Or do we simply do what we want or say, eh, that looks good to me? Or do we prioritize other things like, well, is that the best part of the neighborhood? Is that the best return on my investment? Is that this, that, and the other thing? You can fill in the blank. There are a million things that can distract us from what should be the main purpose. And I'm not saying any of those things are necessarily wrong but they should not be the driving factor of our lives. Jesus and his mission should be. We serve a living Lord. Is he alive to you in that choice? So Paul makes strategic choices in order to see the gospel advanced. I'm going to speed up here a little bit to make sure we cover it. I've got two more things to point out here in Paul's life. As we return to our story, so Paul has just appealed to Caesar, and Festus says, okay, you're a Roman citizen, you have the right to do that, it is my responsibility, you will go to Caesar. But Festus kind of has a problem, he doesn't really know what Paul has done wrong, doesn't really know why Paul's still in prison. And so, he 
puts Paul back in custody and is trying to figure out what to do with him. And fortunately for Festus, King Agrippa, who's a king uh, over part of the Jewish world at that point in time, comes to visit him, comes to pay his respects to the new governor. And Festus says, oh, I'm glad you're here. Let's talk about this guy, Paul, that I don't know what to do with. And that's where we, and so he recounts the trial, he recounts the situation, and that's where we come to what I started with this morning, where Festus says, you know, I don't really care about their disagreement, but one thing I did notice was that Paul and the Jews were disagreeing about a certain Jesus who was, who was dead, but Paul claims is alive. That struck me because as I looked at that, I said, well, why does Festus even know that this is about Jesus? The accusations that were laid against Paul didn't really have anything to do with Jesus. If you go look at chapter 24, they had to do with causing riots, with causing trouble, stirring up problems, bringing a Greek into the temple. Jesus wasn't really central to the accusation that the Jews made. And yet, if you look at Paul's defense, Jesus is central to his defense. I think there are a lot of reasons going on there as to why Paul shifted the focus from the legal points in front of him to Jesus. I think there are a lot of reasons going on there, but the one that really stood out to me is that I believe Jesus is, that Paul is seeking an opportunity to share Christ with the people that he is standing in front of. I think Paul looks at the situation, he says, you know what, this is a chance that I have to tell this man about Jesus Christ. Now, why do I say that? One, I, I think Paul's uh, broad trajectory of his life is that if you knew him for 15 minutes, you knew that he was about Jesus. You couldn't escape that. I also think that uh, when Festus says, and I, I could be wrong in my understanding uh, of the verse, but it seems to me that when Festus says, Paul asserted uh, that, that Jesus is alive. I think he knows that Paul is making that claim, so probably from Paul in his defense. But then also in chapter 26, which you'll we'll get to next week, where Paul, at, by the end of the trial, King Agrippa says, and, and Paul, do you want me to believe in Jesus too? And Paul says, absolutely. I want everyone in this room to believe. And you get a glimpse into his heart. Why does he talk about Jesus so much? It's because Jesus is his Lord and he wants others to know it and not just know it. He wants Jesus to be their Lord too. And so Paul seeks out an opportunity. He takes what's in front of him and says, I can use this for the gospel. I can use this to point people to Jesus. And so Festus walks away from the conversation and says, I didn't really catch the rest of it, but Paul follows Jesus. Jesus Christ is the living Lord of Paul's life. He makes a difference in his life. And again, the question for us is the same. Does he make that same sort of difference for us? Do we look for opportunities and not just wait until somebody says, hey, tell me about Jesus, to point to Jesus? And I'm talking to myself here in this. You know, there's a, there's a couple of guys that I've gotten to know in Ecuador, um, just a glimpse into our reality. There are a lot more security guards in Ecuador than there are around here. And so you go walking down the street and you run into them. We've got one at church. And so I've kind of become friends with a couple of them. And as I've grown in my friendship with them, I have become challenged and convicted that I have not yet shared Christ with them. I have not yet 
made the opportunity, realizing that obviously you can't force what the Holy Spirit's doing. I'm not talking about that. But as the Holy Spirit speaks to me, I feel like it's pretty clear, Jeremy, it's time. <laughs> it's been time for a little while. What are you waiting for? Uh, and, and I need to take this home and let Jesus be my Lord in that situation. Say, Jesus, you're alive, and that makes a difference to me. And so I'm going to take the risk, like Paul. I'm going to make the opportunity. I'm going to seek out a way to point to Jesus in these relationships instead of just sitting idly by and hoping and praying. And I do pray, but sometimes we use that as an excuse, don't we? And so we learn from Paul that if Jesus is our living Lord, then we make strategic choices in how we live our lives, and we seek opportunities to share Christ with other people. And finally, third thing. So Festus shares with Agrippa, this is what's going on. That's the one thing that stands out to him. And then we come to the end of the chapter. After hearing about Paul and this case, King Agrippa says to Festus, I'd like to meet this guy. I'd like to hear from him myself. And Agrippa says, or Festus says, great, we'll do that tomorrow. Verse 23, so the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live anymore. And then Festus finishes up by saying, I need your help to figure out what he's actually done wrong because I need to send him to Caesar and I can't send him without a charge. I want you to catch the contrast here. I think Luke is being deliberate. We're going to hear Paul's defense next week. But what, Paul, what Luke does is he sets up the, the stage for us and he sets it up in such a way that there's a huge contrast going, up, going on here. Verse 23 again. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. You can probably picture it in your mind, right? Trumpets blowing, capes furled behind. The king walks in and takes a seat on his throne, surrounded by military men in uniform, surrounded by the important people of the city, potentially in an area somewhat like this. And if you look from the outside, there is no question that these men and women are important. Actually, probably, no, including Bernice, men and women are important. They're powerful people. People that think they deserve respect and people that many, many would say do deserve respect because of their power, because of their position. All this pomp, all this gallantry. And then it says about Paul, then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Paul was brought in at the command of someone else. He doesn't even have free rule of his own choices. Probably comes in with chains guarded by soldiers. Paul, insignificant, on trial, weak Paul. And yet what you're going to see next week is that Paul took the stage and he was clearly the man of importance on that day. He was clearly the man who commanded the respect and the attention of all the important people. And I believe that's because 
he walked with his risen Lord. He had no fear when he stood before them. Why is that? Why would Paul have no fear? It's because Jesus is alive, and he knows it. And it makes all the difference in the world to him. You see, if Jesus isn't alive, then Paul should be afraid. Paul should be afraid. He's got no help. He's got nowhere to go. He's got no, uh, no real, nothing real to fall back on. And yet Jesus is alive, and Jesus, this is the same Jesus who said, all authority has been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples, right? Matthew 28. I'm guessing Paul was familiar with that. At the very least, he knew he had been told to do that personally by Jesus. And so, knowing that Jesus is the one with all authority and knowing that he has been called to stand up, Paul fearlessly stands before whoever. He even says in chapter 26, I stand here before great and small. Paul doesn't care who's listening. He just wants you to listen and to hear about Jesus. And so we see in Paul's life a boldness that is only explained by Jesus. A boldness that only uh, knowing the risen Lord and Savior can help um, explain. And so in this passage, we see that Paul serves a living Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We see that in in the strategic choices that he makes, that he's willing to make personal sacrifice, he's willing to take risk, he's willing to lay it all on the line to follow Jesus. We see that uh, in the reality that he sought opportunities to share his faith. Paul didn't just wait in the sidelines. He said, you need to know Jesus, and I'm going to do everything I can to introduce you to him. And then we see that Paul... Uh, is standing fearlessly before anyone and everyone to talk about his faith. And I don't think any of that can be explained if Jesus is not his risen Lord and Savior. And so back to my question for all of us. Is Jesus Christ the living Lord of your life? Or is he simply a dead man who you like to talk about? Is he alive? Because if he's alive, he makes a difference. And if he makes no difference, you might as well call him dead, at least personally and practically. And by the, by the challenge of Paul's example to us, the difference that, Paul, that Jesus makes is night and day. The difference that a living Savior makes in our lives is night and day. He touches all areas of our lives. And we should worship him as living Lord and Savior. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I thank you that you are alive. Um, And would that become more foundational in our lives? Would we walk more closely with you, experiencing the reality that you are the Lord, but not a dead one, a living one. And would you become so alive in us that we follow Christ similar to the example of Paul? Lord, would you do that in our hearts? In Jesus' name, amen.